today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Look at this and you think, man, that's got to be quite the process. How did they figure that all out? And who figured that all out? Well, actually, it's quite an extensive process all the way from the first century and just after the first century and on into the third and fourth century of looking at different writings and figuring out which one of these are truly inspired, which one of these should be used again as a grouping of books or letters for the benefit of the church. One of the first things they said is the document in question had to conform to the rule of faith. As you join us today for Pastor David's message, you may come from a background of faith and intense Bible study. You may also have never picked up a Bible in your life and are new to faith in general. No matter where you're coming from today, Pastor David wants to invite you to journey with him through all of Scripture learning the key truths of each book and revealing the purpose behind it all. Today, you'll learn how the Bible came to be, who wrote it, and some other fascinating facts about God's Word. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 with part 3 of his message, The Beginning, The End, The New Beginning. Another great Bible fact for you. From Elvis to you two, the King James Bible has inspired the lyrics of more pop and rock songs than any other book. Now that is an oddity. But when you start thinking about it, you start realizing, man, there's a lot of rock guys, particularly at the era that I grew up in, that 60s, 70s, 80s time frame, that, man, they would use little pieces of licks. Some of you, you remember the group, The Birds? To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Yeah, he's quoting from Solomon right there from uh, Ecclesiastes. A time to every purpose under heaven. And again, multiples and multiples. YouTube as well as Elvis throughout all of it. And you know what? You, you look at that and you understand, man, God had planted in these individuals' lives his word back there. And they would use little snippets of it through these different songs. Well, when we look at the Bible, the Bible is divided up into different categories and different kind of literary styles. Different people will list them differently, but in essence, it's primarily these four. History, poetry, instructive, and prophecy. Uh, as I said, you can call them different things, look at them different ways. But these four primary, I think, cover pretty much everything within the Word of God. These four different literary styles. Now, the first one we see is history. 22 of the 66 books within your Bible can be categorized as history. All the way back from Genesis, all through the messages of the kings, the situation of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 
those, and then we get into the New Testament, the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts. All of those are historical documents. We also call them narratives. There's a lot of dialogue going on. One of the things about in the books of history, there's usually, and I'm going to put this in big quotes, there's usually not a lot of doctrine that is being in those areas. However, we see doctrine being played out in them. It's not an instructive like we'll look at a moment, but it is telling, again, the story of God's redemption, the story of how God called a people, all of that situation, the story, the understanding of Christ's coming, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of these things brought together. Now, it's interesting. The Jewish Bible doesn't have them in this order. They're in the Old Testament. They have a completely different order than what we have. But when you look at your Bible, I don't care if it's an NIV or a New King James or an English Standard Version or a King James, your Old Testament order of books is just exactly this. The first 17 books, the first 17 books of your Bible are those history books. So if you're trying to figure out where is the book of Ezra, you understand? No, he's history. He's telling about going back into the promised land and rebuilding the temple there. He's history. So he is in that first 17. Just an easier way to help you to find it and understand it. And even in the New Testament, the first five books are your history books. It gives an understanding of the background and the basis. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right there. So then from history, we move and we look at the books of poetry. Now, you and I might look at these books of poetry and say, Job, poetry? That doesn't sound like poetry to me. But really and truly, it is. It's written within a Hebrew style of poetry. And again, all five of the poetry books in the Old Testament in our English Bible are all together. They follow right after the books of history. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right in that order. What about in the New Testament? Do you know what books we have in the New Testament of poetry? Well, we really don't have any. However, you read some of the stuff that Paul writes, and suddenly, man, Paul breaks into these words of praise and declaration. You think, Paul, man, that's beautiful poetry. We sing a lot of that kind of stuff too, even that what Paul has written. Again, bringing glory and honor and, and praise to uh, the, the Lord Most High and on and on he goes. The next one is the books that are instructive, 21 of the 66. In the Old Testament, do we have any instructive books? Well, yeah, we could look at the book of Leviticus, and we could look at the book of Deuteronomy and say, yeah, there's, man, there's a lot of rules and regs in those books. But we really don't look at those as instructive so much for the church. I'm not discounting those things. I'm just saying those aren't really the instructive ones for the church. But the ones for the church, again, are all grouped together. There's 21 of them in the New Testament. And we have Paul's writings and then writings by others like James and Peter and and John and Jude. So again, all of Paul's writings are right together. Again, to help in a, a memory way of finding those books, you can look at them in that way. Then lastly, we have the books of prophecy. 18 
of the 66 books in our Bible are prophecy. 17 of them are in the Old Testament, one of them in the New Testament. And you get, again, all the books of prophecy grouped together in the Old Testament. Just throw this out here. You know the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? How much they spoke, the number of words, how big the book is. That's it. Not that one is more important than the other. No, Isaiah is the biggest one. More, more words, there's more volume in Isaiah by a long shot than there are in the minor prophets. But again, that's, all, that's the reason that they're put in that category of major prophets and minor prophets. And then, of course, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Okay, here's another Bible fact for you. There's an organization that parachutes copies of the Bible into North Korea. And the Bible, by the way, is absolutely banned in North Korea. You could receive a death sentence. You could be executed for having, particularly if you are dispersing the word of God. So what they do is in South Korea, they get these bags with copies of John in them. They seal these bags, fill them with helium, and then let them go when the wind is going right, and they go right over North Korea. Now, North Korea, of course, the guards, are, they're trying to shoot them down. But uh, when they shoot them down, they drop. And of course, it's against the law to go get one. But that doesn't keep the North Koreans to figure out, man, what is it that they've got there? As a matter of fact, the propaganda of the North Koreans about these bags, that's poison. They're sending poison over here. They're trying to kill you. That bag is laced with stuff that will kill you. But the North, North Koreans say, no, we got kind of a clue what that is now. And so they go after and get it. Again, just one of the way. Also, in that whole area, there's a tremendous amount of different radio programs that are broadcasting the gospel message into North Korea. Now, we have a treaty with Mexico. They won't let us broadcast into Mexico. But they are broadcasting in North Korea for the precise purpose of getting the gospel message into North Korea. Now, it's against the law. If you're in North Korea and you dial your dial into that Christian radio station that's proclaiming the message, but that doesn't keep them from doing it. Again, the blessings of being able to break through these barriers, break through these walls with the hope of the gospel. Have you ever heard of the canon of Scripture? The canon of Scripture. Well, one thing that it's not is not this. It's not that they're blasting the scripture out through a canon. No, that's, that's not it at all. That's a different canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. So that's not it. No, the canon of scripture, actually the word canon is a reference to the, a measuring reed or a standard by which something is measured or accepted. So in reference to the Bible, a canon has to do with that, whether or not they consider that body of writing to be really inspired. Is that a part of the canon? The process of canonization, it has to do with, again, looking at these writings, trying to understand, trying to deem whether they really are inspired, and thus they would include them within our New Testament, quote-unquote, canon of Scripture. In other words, the ones that we look to be inspired. You look at this and you think, man, that's got to be quite the process. How did they figure that all out? And who figured that all out? Well, actually, it's quite an extensive 
process all the way from the first century and just after the first century and on into the third and fourth century of looking at different writings and figuring out which one of these are truly inspired, which one of these should be used again as a grouping of books or letters for the benefit of the church. One of the first things they said is the document in question had to conform to the rule of faith. So in other words, the church was already established. A rule of faith and an understanding of what true doctrine was was already there. So whatever that letter or whatever that book was, it had to make sure that it conformed to the rule of faith. Conformity between the document and what they call orthodoxy or the accepted matter of receiving the truth. So again, the Christian truth recognized as normative in the churches. The church was exploding during that time, and it was exploding primarily through a lot of oral traditions and teachings as teachers like Paul, like Peter, like Timothy, like Thomas, like a bunch of them went out spreading the gospel, and then from them, they lifted up or raised up disciples, and they went out and spread the gospel. And then when the writings came through, they said, we need to make sure that that conforms to what we already know. The second thing is, The document required some sort of, catch this word, apostolicity. Apostolicity. What in the world is that? Well, again, it had to include those or it had to come from those who were in immediate contact with the apostles. Either an apostle himself or somebody that was so connected with the apostles that there was no doubt about it. You realize, of course, that Luke is not an apostle. Luke, though, was in very close connection with the apostle Paul. And as Luke writes both the gospel according to Luke and as well as the book of Acts, his works were readily accepted because of his relationship with Paul. The writer of the gospel of Mark, John Mark, again, a young man that again had been in connection with the Apostle Paul, as well as with Peter, and again, seeing God's hand work and move. And on we go. It either had to be an apostle or somebody that was in very close contact with the apostles. And then thirdly, the document widespread and continuous acceptance and usage by churches everywhere. So in other words, if if a document, man, everybody is using it because we see God's hand in it. We believe that this is truly a inspired book and God wants us to have it. Real quick, let me move to the next one here. How does the New Testament measure up to other ancient books? When we look at ancient texts and the number of early manuscripts, we don't have any of what they call the autograph text. In other words, we don't have anything that Homer put his hand to or that Herodias put his hand to, or that Josephus put his hand to. We have copies of these. Number one, where was the original written? And what's the earliest manuscript? And how many copies of those early manuscripts do we have? These texts that are, again, accepted in the secular world, they have hardly any old manuscripts. As a matter of fact, Homer's Iliad, well accepted that it was Homer that wrote that. It was written in 700 BC. Though we do have some old manuscripts, we really don't know the age of the earliest one that they have. For the history of Herodias, written in 425 BC, 
the earliest copy of anything is almost 500 years from that. And they only have eight that are that close. Josephus' Jewish Wars, written in the first century, AD 70. The earliest copies that we have of Josephus' writings, 400 years later. And we only have nine early copies of that. The histories of Tacitus, written in 100 AD. 800 years later, we find manuscripts that are written 800 years from when it was originally written. That's the closest that we come. And we all have two of those that are that close. But then the New Testament. The New Testament was written between AD 35 and about AD 100. The earliest manuscript that we have copies of was actually only 25 years later, 125 AD. And we have like 5,000 over 5,700 of those that are that close. The veracity, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the gospel message. Why in the world do we have so many of those? Well, as I was reading, I also came to understand that in the Old Testament, as the scribes were writing the new copies of the Old Testament, well, if a copy got old, they destroyed it. They would actually burn it because, again, they they felt this is God's word. We want to honor it. We don't want it to go, you know, wrapping up somebody's fish or anything. We're going to go ahead and we're going to burn it and destroy it completely. And we've got a new copy to place over it. But with the New Testament, again, a whole different mindset. Man, I've got a copy of Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. Would you want one? Yeah, make me one too. And they didn't have copy machines like we do today. Hey, let's run off 40, 50 copies of it. No, they were handwritten. And you might think, well, at that point in time, don't we have a lot of errors within that? Let me be one to attest to you right now here today. Yes, there are errors in the Bible. However, the errors are so minor so inconsequential that it makes absolutely no impact on our doctrine, our understanding, or the story that it declares. Things, again, didn't bring with me any samples of that, but simply the things of there were two angels versus one angel. Okay, how much of a difference does that make in our doctrine, our understanding of the resurrection? Not that much. In one document, they said 10,000 horses. Another one says 100,000. Again, okay, these are copyist errors, no big deal. And again, it does not impact, again, the truth of the message of the hope of the gospel. We look and we understand that God's word to us has been maintained, guess what? Supernaturally. Supernaturally. Do you realize for the last 2,000 years how many times they have tried to destroy the word of God? to drive it out of countries, to try and grab everybody's Bible and burn them up and to outlaw the Bible. And you know what? When it became outlawed, guess what? It became more precious. And so people held on to them even more. And they understand, if they're going to take this from me, I need to start reading it and I need to start memorizing it because I may be without it soon and I want to know what that's about. You see, the thing that the enemy meant for evil, God turned around for good. Isn't he good at that? He is so good at that. Another quick Bible fact. Do you know that in the Bible, God sent two bears to kill 42 children because they mocked a man who had a bald head. 
So all those of you who are losing hair, you know, be of good cheer. God is on your side. Okay. Actually, he was a prophet and they were mocking the prophet and calling him, hey, go up thou baldy, go up thou baldy. And that was it. They were done. Okay. We're at, and God sent two bears out of the woods and killed the kids. And you think, whoa, that's pretty vicious. God is serious about his word. And that prophet was a man who was proclaiming his word. And these kids were mocking him. There's a lot of weird. I don't know. How many of you know there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible? Okay. And there's areas in the Bible. And sometimes you might say, man, that's, that's like R-rated. You're not going to preach that on Sunday, are you, pastor? Well, yeah, we're going to go through that too. And on Wednesday night, we're going to look at some of that. You know why? Because God tells the whole truth. He just lays it out there, warts and all, and says, this is humanity, but my love for them continues on, even in their foolishness, even in their grossness and their vileness, my love reaches to them. And we see that from the beginning to the end, that his desire is to make a new beginning in all of his creation and for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Guys, as we get into the study... Some were wanting to know, well, what would be the best thing to have to be able to prepare me for the study that we're going through? And the best thing that you can have to prepare you for the study that we're going through is your Bible, okay? Read through your Bible. We're going to be going through. Can you read through your Bible in a year? I think you can. There's plenty of programs to read through the Bible in the year. Now, we're going to be taking a different pattern than probably some of the reading programs that you have. We're going to take two weeks to get through the book of Genesis. We're going to take one week to get through Exodus. We're going to take one week to get through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all in one, okay? That's kind of the pattern that we're going to go. It's going to go fast and furious because guess what? In one year of preaching, you don't get 52 weeks, because there's special speakers, there's holidays and all those things. And I've just really felt uh, led by the Lord to do this, do this in one year, so that by the end of April next year, we'll have gone through. However, as an assisting to your going through there, there is a great little book by Stephen Miller, A Complete Guide to the Bible by Stephen Miller. It's available in a lot of different places online. Well, guys... I hope that through the next many weeks to come, we can get excited about seeing his story through the 66 books of the Bible as we come together. We're going to start at the beginning, Genesis, and we're going to work all the way through the end to Revelation. And I'm excited about, for me, I mean, I, I've never done this. So you guys are guinea pigs, okay? And I really appreciate your willingness to uh, be my test modules for this. Now, I've never tried to teach through in a full year. Trust me, it's going to be difficult. It's a whole lot easier to take your time than it is to try and push it through because you got to go through and you got to glean up the best of the best stuff. So you'd be praying for me. I'd be praying for you in order that the Lord might be glorified through it all. Amen. Have you noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? 
That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for His Son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in His Word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life, too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying, and thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.